Hello and welcome to the EDH RetCast, where we're all about commander, data, and dad jokes. I'm Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-host. His evoke cost is equal to his convoke cost, which is also equal to his provoke cost. It's Matt Morgan. So, Joey, I'm really proud of one of my buddies. Uh, He got on the Dolly Parton diet and it's really working for him. He's gone from a nine to a five. (laughs) It's working nine to five. It is. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it it really made Jolene. So it, it's good for him. I, no, I, I feel like you've used the Jolene one before, but you, you just can't help yourself. Like the Dolly Parton puns. Who am I kidding? I want more of them. Like if you have more, honestly, give me like that's excellent. That, that's, but like using <laughs> half of a joke is like being mad that I use the same barbecue sauce on a different meat. Like you can't be mad about that. It's still it still works. Still especially. Good. Especially when it's a dad joke about Dolly Parton. Like, sir, I, I, I hope there are more. Queen. Queen status like, right there. Completely, yeah. Uh, and it's just going to be the two of us for this episode. Dana will not be here for this episode, but that is perfectly okay because, Matt, we've got a very interesting topic that we want to tackle. Yeah, so this is a topic that we talked about a couple years ago, way back in episode 102, but we figured, what? why not? It's been a couple years Let's check this out again. So, Joey, what is that topic? We wanted to ask, does budget change strategy sometimes? Are there ways where different restrictions can have domino or ripple effects on a deck? And using the lens of budget to look through that and see if there are shifts in the data when certain expensive cards are or are not present in a deck. It should be a pretty interesting time to see whether there are those kinds of shifts and what those ripple effects might mean for our own deck building. I'm Matt, I, I can't believe episode 102. <laughs> like That was like three years ago. I, it was a while ago. Sometimes I can't even believe that we've been podcasting for like five years. Like this is like what? Like so, I'm, this is an interesting one to finally get back around to. Yeah, well, with the amount of commanders that we get every single year, it's kind of worthwhile to revisit because, yeah, it was it was interesting seeing the data now, but deck building trends have changed, players have changed. So, mm. do some of these things that we explored before still hold up today? And it's gonna be gonna be fun to figure out. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, real quick, though, before we get into this topic, we've got some shout outs that we want to do. First and foremost, Chase. We want to thank you so much for helping with the post-production on the show. You can find Chase on the onlines at Mana Curves, everybody. They're awesome. Go check them out. Thank you so much, Chase. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by liking and subscribing to this video on YouTube, subscribing on your local podcast app, or by going to patreon.com slash edhretcast. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. It's just a great way to get yourself a little bonus while also supporting the show. And one of those bonuses you can get for yourself is the weekly patron shout out, which we are going to give this week to Rodrigo Promenta. So, Rodrigo, I don't think we have to really guess what your favorite type of cheese is. Uh, Obviously, it's it's (laughs) pimenta cheese, um, as we say in the Midwest. Pimento, for those of you who don't actually know. But, Rodrigo... Glad you're cheese guy, Rodrigo. Oh, Rodrigo, I recognize that name. Actually, a huge Corgi guy, fellow lover of all things Corgi. So thank you so, so much, Rodrigo, for being a fantastic supporter of the show. I'm sorry that Matt's call out was really cheesy, but we hope that you appreciate the the, the shout out. It was delicious nonetheless. Oh, man. Is, is this what happens when Dana's not here to keep us on task? Like, is this what... Like... I mean, Dana, he, he's not here to say no, so... 
yeah jokes on him really (laughs) yeah all right we we will try to keep our focus for this topic so let's get into it asking are there ways in which budget changes a strategy there are are there shifts in the data going around and i guess we'll start with some big obvious examples because matt i don't know about you but when i think of a higher budget deck there are a couple of big signifier cards that come to my mind like cyclonic drift for example is pretty expensive or heroic intervention never stays a five dollar card it always creeps back up to 10 15 uh teferi's protection yet another way um and also mana bases like (laughs) mana bases are one of the biggest ways that a dex price can just go ratchet up and up and up and up and up and so quick early question i guess here do you think that that has a material effect on a deck strategy or the way that you play it does the presence of those cards change the way that you play that deck or the way the deck functions so so I think there's two two questions here really like do do the expensive cards dictate the the strategy and then does the mana base dictate the strategy and and to the first one n- no the the cards you mentioned Joey Cyclonic Rift Teferi's Protection those are just very very good cards but they don't do anything specific mm. they they're not tied to a certain strategy or anything like that and so when somebody's I mean that's why they're so expensive because so many people want them for their decks because they're just generically good. They're not tied to, oh, well, I have a I need a Teferi's protection for my token deck. Well, no, you just want Teferi's protection for any deck, really. And that's what makes them such expensive cards because so many people are trying to get their hands on them. Yeah. And especially with that, I mean, like you mentioned a token deck right there, there are perfectly good budget ways to protect your board if that's the thing that you're using that card slot for. Yeah. Uh, Unbreakable formation is a thing that comes to my mind where it gives your stuff indestructible or rootborn defenses like actually has the populate synergy in a tokens deck. Mm -hmm. So those could be alternatives that you use instead. They are, are they as grandiose and amazing as deferred protection? No, they won't protect you from every single situation, but they're going to do the job. And in some cases, they'll have other synergies that could even, you know, the addendum ability on Unbreakable Formation could help you out a little bit more in certain situations, or Rootborn Defenses could help you out, giving you another creature on the field. So it's not like having access to those expensive cards completely upends the deck. Yeah, absolutely. I Those those cards, yes, they're expensive because everybody wants them, so like it, they just go hand in hand. You can still have a, a $30 deck, but then you, you put Cyclonic Rift in there, and it's not a $30 deck anymore because <laughs> you just doubled the budget right there. Uh, but the, the second question that you had, Joey, actually is one that we've talked about several times on the show. Dana and I have both gone on record talking about how the, the mana bases, you know, people still think that you need the original duels, you need fetch lands, so you need Tropical Island and, and, and Arid Mesa, stuff like that, in order to have a, a functioning five-color mana base. And in 2023, with how things have been getting designed lately there's nothing more overrated these days than the ABU duels. The the yeah. the diminishing returns that you get from tuning your mana base absolutely is kind of shown front and center with ABU duels. They're prestige cards at this point. You don't we have commons and uncommons now that have basic land types that you can fetch out and you're losing percentage points of percentage points unless you're playing <laughs> tournament level commander, which I know some people do that, not for me. But if you are, like, then sure, I understand the need for it. But if you're not playing that, you absolutely do not need the ABU duels, that type. In, in 2014, sure, because you could only fetch up Shocklands and the original duels. But we're in a completely different format these days. Yeah, You absolutely do not need those. So a, a budget five-color mana base is totally doable, and you're skipping half a beat. You're not missing all that much. You're not setting yourself back by playing a budget five-color mana base because... 
The budget has gotten so much better these days, whether it's been reprints or it's been new cards that have been introduced. So honestly, it's probably something we need to drop in 2023 as as players of Commander that you have to spend money to have a good five-color mana base. That's just not the case anymore. I mean, Wizards of the Coast has made two different five-color precons, or yeah. maybe more if I'm forgetting, but like the Ur-Dragon and Jared Carthalian were both perfectly functional right out of the box and they definitely had budget mana bases in those and i think they worked perfectly fine mm-hmm. and I, really like yeah i i think that there is a, certainly a case where you know if a deck has a budget mana base that could affect its tempo a little bit more because slightly more of those lands will enter the battlefield tapped but i don't feel that that is such a striking thing that you know you absolutely have to get the very expensive stuff you just you just really don't have to get the expensive stuff and the material effect that it has on the strategy overall is matt as you said very very minimal it's not like the deck cannot function in any way in fact it really can function and you don't have to break the bank just getting these expensive lands and that saving on the land base is one of the best ways that you can you know not break the bank on any deck so yeah so i think that those are two questions it's nice to get out of the way in the cases of the teferi's protections there are always really good budget budget alternatives for you and in the cases of mana bases there are always really good budget alternatives there so those are not things that will necessarily have a material or huge impact on a strategy necessarily but matt let's zoom in on some examples where we can see some shifts in the data because there's some interesting stuff that sometimes goes on there um, specifically, I guess, let's start off with, what do you think a Chatterfang Squirrel General? Does that sound like a good place to start? It does, because the, the data that we see of what folks are doing, when you use the advanced filters, which we've said is probably our favorite aspect of the site. Yes, it's yes. <laughs> also, one of the easiest things to get access to is you just go to the commander and scroll down half a page and you see by budget and you can filter everything out. So that's kind of what we're going to be using a lot in this episode. But if you look at the expensive filter when you apply that to Chatterfang, you're going to see a few kind of signpost cards that kind of signify what the rest of the deck happens to be doing. And and it's like, Joey, you, you said earlier, a domino effect. And I think that's a perfect way to describe it because mm. you see cards like doubling season and parallel lives. Well, you spent a hundred bucks on a doubling season. What's another 10 bucks out of pitiless plunderer and just really go hard on the aristocrat <laughs> strategy. Yeah, that's just it. The presence of some of those expensive cards does seem to lend a little bit more like, okay, yeah, probably more of these other expensive cards. And I think the Pitiless Plunderer is the thing that catches my eye the most there because that is like, what, a $14 card or something at this point? And specifically with Chatterfang, I mean, Chatterfang's got this amazing ability. Whenever you'd create one or more tokens, you create that many tokens plus that many 1-1 green squirrels. And then you can also sacrifice your tokens to get a Chatterfang minus X ability to kill off other creatures. And Pitiless Plunderer says whenever another creature you control dies, you create a treasure token. So if you sacrifice one of those squirrels, well, Pitiless Plunderer is going to give you a treasure token and then Chatterfang is going to give you a squirrel. And then you can just go infinite, infinite, infinite with all of that stuff. And that seems really good, especially if you've got doubling season making it more (laughs) infinite or crazy Mm -hmm. stuff like that Mm -hmm. too and that is definitely kind of the stuff that we see when those decks are built you know with the presence of those bigger expensive cards but when the deck is being built without those cards like when it's you know you're using the cheap filter on edh rec to see just the the lower budget versions of the deck a lot of those cards disappear because doubling season is really expensive put this blunder is really expensive and when those vanish from the data i mean really what we're left with is just like this this deck doesn't care about combos and aristocrats and stuff like that it's just all squirrels it's just squirrels 
Yeah, you don't see on the expensive side of the page Squirrel Sovereign really at all. But suddenly when you go to the cheap filter, it's in over 80, 82% of the decks for Chatterfang, which is wild. And, and if you're playing Aristocrats, you don't really need Keeper, But here people are playing these squirrels you control, get plus one, plus zero, and gain menace until end of turn. So it's really just going hard on the fact that, you know, you have this token army that's going to go super wide and you're just having fun with that. That means Squirrel Mob, when you make a bunch of those tokens, Squirrel Mob gets real big. Oh, yeah, yeah. And to like give some specific numbers here, like you mentioned the Keeper card right there. In the expensive version of a Chatterfang deck, it's only showing up in like a third of Chatterfang lists. But in the inexpensive version of the deck, it's showing up in 84% of them. Like that's the level of strategic shift that we're seeing here. Because on, on a budget, just like, yeah, go squirrels. Just have fun with a bunch of awesome squirrel stuff. And obviously, if you wanted to build the deck as combo on a budget, you totally could do that. And if you wanted to build just squirrels on a high budget, you totally could as well. But these are interesting shifts to observe just when we're taking a look at this data. Yeah, and, and it's not to say that like all the aristocrats pieces also go out the window either. You still have some of the budget-focused pieces there. Zulaport Cutthroat, still very good. Yeah. But spending a dollar on a card, 50 cents, depending on if it's on, you know, it gets reprinted or whatever, compared to Pitiless Plunder, that hasn't been under $5 in probably five years. Yeah. So it's, it's just a very, very stark strategy of, you know, you have a few of the budget pieces, but really you're just trying to make as many scrolls as possible. And so this is probably my favorite example of all the commanders we're going to talk about as far as how drastic is that swing of, well, nobody's really playing Squirrel Sovereign unless it's in those cheap decks. <laughs> yeah, and like... <laughs> I think the aristocrats effects are also like an interesting thing to point out there because like we're probably all familiar with how expensive the meat hook massacre continues to be, right? Like that enchantment is It got banned and got more expensive. I know, right? What, what Which, is this? What the what 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 the heck is up with that? <laughs> yeah, and that's not present on the inexpensive version of this commander's page, but it's in 55% of the higher higher budget version and because yeah, it's really good. But Matt, what you pointed out there is that you can still again totally do aristocrat stuff on a budget because there are there's a good amount of redundancy of the Zulaports, of a whole bunch of those other mm -hmm. type of effects that can still give you the aristocrat stuff if you want. And that is, I think, a really lovely thing to see when we get new cards and, and different, you know, fun stuff from Wizards of the Coast, when we get both reprints and new cards to flesh those things out. Having more redundancy at a lower cost is going to really help you play those decks in whatever way that you want to. But that's just one example, and we probably, as much as we want to talk about squirrels all day, we probably should move on to another example, too. <laughs> yeah, well, another one that, it, this one's maybe a little more specific, but I, I think it's a really, really cool example of, it's still doing something specific, but then the way that it's doing it changes drastically. And that's going to be in my room deck. So uh, if you want to look at dragons upon dragons upon dragons <laughs> sure you can do that in pretty much any colors that have red in there uh dragons have been around for as long as magic has been around but the way they get to execute it so if you look at the cheap decks you're gonna see cards like scourge of Valkus. you're gonna see some more budget-minded we've gotten so many different dang dragons it's it's impossible for them to all be expensive mm. but when you look at the expensive filters on there that's when things get interesting because it's not so much making just every dragon just going in the deck, but the, the strategy changes to, oh, well, I have one very expensive dragon and I want as many copies of that as possible. 
<laughs> yeah, I think especially one of the Lynchman cards that takes my eye here is Terror of the Peaks, which is like, what, a $40 card at this point? Mm -hmm. And that's the five mana dragon that says, uh, whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, Terror of the Peaks deals damage equal to that creature's power to any target. And Miram making copies of this is just berserk just a lot like that is absolutely wild but it's not just the presence of like oh one big dragon matt as you said it really does become <laughs> there's more of a matter of copy stuff going on there because additionally when we're seeing the expensive version of miram decks there are a couple of other clone effects that crop up in the data for example spark double uh, just on the regular miram page spark double had a 27% inclusion rate, but on the expensive version of the deck, it has a 47% <laughs> inclusion rate. Or Sakashima of a Thousand Faces, or the card Pirated Copy. All of those are above 40% because making multiple copies of your Miram Commander or multiple copies of that one Terror of the Peaks, that is absolutely going to take over a game. And that seems to be the whole strategy of the expensive Miram decks is which wildly overpowered dragon can I make as many copies of and ride that to victory? So not even it's not even Terror of the Peaks only, but when you look at it, they're, they key in on a few other big, powerful dragons. A Ancient Copper Dragon is another one that's it's a freaking $70 card these days, <laughs> but having five of them on the battlefield seems to be pretty good. Get to make a lot of, a lot of treasures. <laughs> that seems like overkill. Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the same thing with Utvar Hellkite. That's another one that yeah. you, you, you have six of them you're making a ton of dragons all of a sudden. So yeah, it's it's not about, okay, I'm just going to go wide with all these dragons. It's what's the best dragon that I can make 10 of and how many games can I win with that? And that, that's, to me, that's a significant shift because yeah, it, it, you're really just dialing in on, okay, I have five of these really powerful and expensive dragons. Let's just use that and I call it good. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a great example too, because like if I have just acquired, say, a Terror of the Peaks or uh, an Ancient Copper Dragon or an Old Gnawbone or one of these like really cool things, I'm really excited to see it in the games that I play. And I think that also might also like kind of encourage me a little bit as a player sometimes to bring some more tutors into a deck when I have those big pricey cards. Like, I don't run as many tutors personally these days, but I've absolutely been in the situations where I got the big shiny thing and I can't wait to see it. And so therefore I will hone more of my deck around trying to get that big shiny really cool card into games more often. And that could involve more things like the tutors as an, an example. And that makes the deck a little bit more focused around just that one creature as opposed to me enjoying all of the creatures in my deck. And that might even change the density of creatures that I have in my deck the more that I care about just one or two of them that are big and shiny that I can't wait to see. Matt, does that resonate with you at all? It does. And I think that kind of opens a gateway. I'm going to steal another transition later, but I'm going to steal a transition now <laughs> into oh, <wow. laughs> how you, you mentioned tutors and how that kind of can very quickly make a deck more expensive, but I think that's also probably why you see combo decks typically are going to be so expensive because mm. you're really building a deck around a certain few specific cards. And so you're going to do everything that you can to find those. And the most efficient way to do that is with your tutor package, whether it's demonic tutor and all of those that get very, very expensive because even if the, the, the combo itself is $2 for three cards, trying to find that combo, but every, every other deck wants to find that their combo too. So those best tutors that you might be trying to fit into your deck, even if you're playing three or four of them, 
that can be a couple hundred dollars really quick. <laughs> yeah, very much. And again, to inject a little bit of like, you know, data to support this idea that we're talking about in the expensive version of Miram decks, Worldly Tutor shows up in 39% of those lists. And it definitely is not anywhere near that percentage in the cheaper versions of those lists. And But I totally would understand why. Like, yeah, you want to see your really cool dragons because they cost a lot of money and you can't wait to make a lot of copies of them because they're really good when you make a whole lot of copies of them. Um, but yeah, the, the interesting points there about about, about combo definitely make a whole lot of sense too because like those those things can be really really efficient and if you are organizing the entire deck around getting that thing online you want it to happen efficiently for sure and and yeah i think that the lens that you're bringing there about the combo things is also very very true well i mean another lens is how we can challenge stats right now i told you i was going to steal it, it yes. <laughs> i didn't i didn't want to lie to our audience uh viewers at home <laughs> I'm here for you. So if I say I'm going to do something, I, I want you to believe me that I'm going to do it. So here we're going to challenge stats. Um, uh, Dana's not here to do it. I have to step up. <laughs> I've, so Joey, yeah. would you like to challenge some stats? Sure. Yes. I've gotten to segue <laughs> into challenge stats one time this calendar year. All right, yeah, no, we, we've got more data and personal examples that we want to jump into, but we've got to challenge some of the data that we're seeing on EDH Rack. So we'll take a quick break and come right back. Alrighty, well, I'm going to jump in to challenge the stats here. My challenge this week is for the five color commander, Joda the Unifier. And this card is just bonkers good. I, I can't believe all the stuff that this does. It gives your legendary creatures, including itself, plus X plus X, where X is the number of legendary creatures you control. And most importantly, whenever you cast a legendary spell from your hand, you exile cards from the top of your library until you exile a legendary non-land card that has lesser mana value, and you may cast that card without paying its mana cost, and the rest of those cards go on the bottom of your library in a random order. So, they they put a coat of arms for legends and also gave a, this card like the first slivers cascade ability and it's on a single card and this thing is absolutely way way good there is a card that's showing up in its data about 30% of the time, though, that I think could stand to be in way less of these decks, and that's going to be Kamal's Druidic Vow. Kamal's Druidic Vow is X green green for a legendary sorcery, and you can only cast legendary sorceries if you control a legendary creature or planeswalker, which would be no problem in this deck. Uh, but it says, look at the top X cards of your library. You may put any number of land and or legendary permanent cards with converted mana cost X or less from among them onto the battlefield. The rest of those cards go to your graveyard. And so this seems like a great card for Legends decks, but with Joda specifically, there's kind of a non-bow problem going on with that pseudo-cascade ability. If you cast a random Legends, let's say it's a 4-mana or a 3-mana Legendary card, well, then you're going to start Legend Cascading through your deck. And if you Legend Cascade into this spell, its mana cost is going to be 2, and you would cast Kamal's Ruidic Vow for x equals zero and get no benefit off of it and that's not really what you want in this deck you'd have a much better time actually flipping into i don't know your yoshimarus or your rograx and actually get bodies on the battlefield so this is an exciting looking card for legendary decks but i would hesitate to play x spells in a deck that has a lot of cascade going on especially because you're going to be cascading a whole lot in this deck um, so yeah, I would just avoid that particular legendary card in this particular legend cascady type of deck. So that is my challenge. And Matt, what about you? Well, my challenge this week actually comes from a listener. So uh, Rainier Donga sent us an email, which you can do at edhretcast at gmail.com. And they had a, honestly, it's, 
kind of cool that I hadn't thought about it, but and it's not really on the stats too, but that's why we do this segment. So Rainier says, hey, EDH Ratcast, I have a challenge the stats for Ivy Gleeful Spell Thief. So for those of you who don't know, Ivy Gleeful Spell Thief is the Simic colored commander that when a, the key ability here is whenever a player casts a spell that targets only a single creature other than Ivy Gleeful Spell Thief, you may copy that spell and the, tar- the copy targets Ivy. So Rainier goes on to say that Fool's Demise and its brother False Demise are cards that have some important text that says, when the enchanted creature dies, return that card to the battlefield under your control. So Fool's Demise does that for four and a blue. It's an enchantment aura. When enchanted creature dies, return that card to the battlefield under your control. And then when Fool's Demise is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, return Fool's Demise to its owner's hand. So Rainier points out that this allows you to steal creatures from an opponent, uh, but also lets you save your own creatures as well. Uh, as a bonus, you get a copy of it on your IV. So when you target a creature for, that an opponent controls, you also get a copy that targets IV. And then when the opponent's creature dies, you then get that creature and you have a backup plan for IV as well. It's only run in 43 of the IV decks out there. Currently, IV has almost 5,000 decks. It's one of the, it means almost in the top 100 commanders of all time. So this is a very, very popular commander that has a massive opportunity for some, some crazy synergy there. So Fool's Demise is a wonderful pick. It's only played in 1,600 decks total mm. currently. So this is Dana levels of, of low play here. <laughs> uh, so yes, thank you so much, Rainier A, for the email, but also B, for the fantastic challenge. This is a really good pick. This is a good way to steal your opponent's stuff, but also get double duty and save Ivy. This is great. This is the type of challenge we love to see. I'm way into that. That's, I mean, first of all, it's just such a cool card in general, but what a neat synergy to not only steal stuff, but also still back up your commander, give it a little bit of protection while also putting some fear into your opponents. If someone mm-hmm. wipes the board, your commander's unaffected and you get someone else's, th- oh, what a great pick. Excellent. Super excellent. And you know what, Matt? I think the mention of Ivy here might actually segue us back into our topic because Ivy is another commander. I know segues, right? I can do them when you let me. Did uh, <laughs> did, did, uh, did the challenge have foretell without actually having it on the car? Never mind. I think that I have won this segue. I am reclaiming <laughs> my title one of these days. I've <laughs> there's no t- there's no title. I I want the title. I already segue have it. back. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna make a belt like WWE style for Master of Segways, and we can fight over it. Anyway, Ivy, let's talk about her <laughs> because she's another one that has a just an extremely interesting shift in the data when we are using those lenses of a higher budget filter or a lower budget filter. Um, I, yeah, I mean, Ivy's page is full of some really, really fantastic stuff, but there's some different directions that sometimes people go with her. Um, so I think a lot of folks are probably familiar with like how you can mutate onto your creatures and then Ivy will also get copies of the mutates onto herself as as well. So Sawtusk Demolisher, Pouncing Shore Shark, a bunch of those. And it turns out when you're using the uh, budget filter on Ivy's page, we see a lot of mutate. Like overwhelmingly, her data is all mute. Her top cards become Gem Razor, like Sea Dasher Octopus, all of that kind of stuff. But when we use the higher budget filter, Matt, what happens? So the, the strategy changes quite a bit, actually. And it's not so much that you get these massive $60, $70 cards but the average price of cards goes up to 7 or $8. You get a density of all these just solid players 
that are just at powering out this enchantress style mm. strategy that you might see. So cards like Bear Umbra, you have some of these cards that they're, they're not breaking the bank, but also when you spend, I mean, you need 60 of these cards and when they're all five or six dollars, that gets really expensive really quick. Vesuvian Duplomancy is another enchantment that matters a lot. And again, like five bucks. Ancestral Mask is even five bucks. And that's a great card to make multiple copies of. It gives plus two, plus two for each other enchantment on the battlefield. Uh, the Satessan Champion is also, again, like, you know, six bucks or so, something like that. And each of these cards is showing up in like a minimum of 50% of the higher budget Ivy decks. And... I mean, that's just quite a big shift because when we were looking at the lower budget version of Ivy decks, a card like Ancestral Mask was only in like barely 15% of those types of decks. So we're seeing like a very big difference between Mutate and Enchantress. So yeah, like like you said, I think that those, it, it's a big buildup of all those $5 cards. Yeah, and like I said, that, that adds up super, super quick. So another commander though that I, I'm very intrigued by the shift this one makes because... Typically, I I would think of, oh, well, every card does this one thing, which is make treasures, but then the top 1% of them, those get expensive very, very quickly. So in Zyatora, the Incinerator decks, if the shift is so wild to me that, so in, in the lower budget, you just, typically you're going to see just a bunch of, oh, play big creature, fling it at somebody's face, win game. That's a strategy. And I, I, I'm I, on board with that. I, I am all here for that. Big same. <laughs> but when you when you look at the, the expensive filter, all of a sudden the deck becomes all about treasures and how can we maximize that? So you're going to get, again, you're, it's not wildly expensive, but Goldspan Dragon, that's a $10, $15 card most days. Mm-hmm. That shows up all of a sudden in over 66% of decks. You get, obviously, you have Dockside Extortions. You have Old Gnawbone. A bunch of heavy hitters when it comes to making a bunch of treasures that all of a sudden you start to see show up in over half the decks. <laughs> yeah, and even Revel and Riches jumps <laughs> up quite a bit in popularity, up to 43%. Because, yeah, when you have access to a, a Dockside Extortionist and you're playing a commander that can make some treasure tokens, the fact that you can fling creatures at your opponent's face is certainly still relevant. It's not like that's an irrelevant fact for this card, but having more of those Copper Dragons, Old Gnawbones, means that you can unlock other of those synergies that allow the treasure aspect of this strategy to shine in a way that like the cheap version of the deck just didn't care. It really was not paying attention to that nearly at all. Its biggest cards, its heaviest hitters, its most important high synergy cards were more stuff like Mr. Orpheo the Boulder to double your creature's power until end of turn, or Phyto Titan to fling seven damages someone's face and get it right back immediately or damagoth titan which is just an 11 power creature like what the cheaper version of the deck did was probably more up your and my alley matt where we we're just like yeah damage yeah <laughs> like and that's just a very different beast you know that's really funny to see that difference yeah and, it, and it's such a stark difference too because uh, like i said you could you could dang near anybody can play a big beefy creature and then throw it at somebody's face but all of the support cards around treasures i would have I remember when we first saw treasures and it was like, okay, like that's kind of okay. But then all of a sudden we have $70 ancient copper dragons, which we talked about earlier. <laughs> they just make a big old pile of treasures for you and, and you can just go to town that way. So it's, it's, it's kind of wild to me, but also uh, 
Yeah, it, it, the math checks out here. <laughs> the math is mathing, as they say. All right, well, I want to jump to one other example here that I also think is pretty darn interesting, the, the subtle shifts that we see in the data here. And it's definitely one of the more uh, complex types of commanders to play. It's Obeka Brute Chronologist, a Grixis Ogre Wizard, a 3-4 that can tap to allow the player whose turn it is to end the turn right then and there. So usually you're going to use this on yourself. And this is a really cool commander to get around certain downsides of very interesting cards. Like, you know, as, as a random example here, the card Ideas Unbound is a two mana blue sorcery where you draw three cards and then you would discard three cards at the end of turn. And in response to that end of turn trigger, you know, that discard three cards ability goes on the stack at the beginning of the end step. And instead, Obaka can just tap and be like, nah, I'm going to evade that. And there are some really awesome tricks that this commander is able to pull off, but the tricks are slightly different depending on whether there are certain expensive cards present in the list. And I'm about to name a card that Matt's going to get really excited about. So expensive versions of Obeka play Sneak Attack, which is a card that I know Matt likes a whole, whole lot. G give me some of that. Give me, give me more. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's a card with a really tremendous downside, right? Like Sneak Attack, you can pay one mana to cheat a creature from your hand directly into play. But at the beginning of the next end step, you'll have to sacrifice that creature. Only Obeka is like, no, I don't really need to sacrifice that creature. I can just end the turn and exile that sacrifice trigger if I really want to. So when the decks are a bit more expensive and they contain certain signature cards like Sneak Attack, well, we start to see some really big expensive creatures crop up alongside them, like Ancient Silver Dragon or Massacre Worm, for example, because those are really exciting to sneak in with a sneak attack. Yeah, so the, the strategy of Obeka, it doesn't really change a whole lot because Obeka itself lends to a very specific strategy with, okay, well, I want to end the turn when I want it to end. So you're playing around with that. And, and in the higher budget, you still have the expensive beaters you have. Ancient Copper Dragon, Massacre Worm, the the expensive and fancy toys to play with and, and cheat around with. Mm. But when you go into the low budget, it doesn't change so much with what you're doing because, like I said, there's a strategy there. But how you're doing it, you're playing around with stuff with Myriad, for example. You have cards like Elturel Survivors that show up in over half the budget decks there. You have cards like Around Me of the Dead Tide that gives everything Encore in your graveyard. Mm. So there's... You're doing something different. You're still cheating things into play, but how you're doing it. And it's it's fun to see how an entire mechanic kind of shifts away from, okay, well, you don't really need Massacre Worm. You can play a 50 cent card and really just get the same effect there. Yeah. And those sneak attack or Ilharg effects in the budget version drop to like, I don't know, 15% inclusions instead. And the Myriad cards get to shine and... I, I think that's so interesting because Myriad really does add a, a, like a further wrinkle in time. Heh, because Obeka's a chronologist time. Um, mm. it, it was a decent joke, Matt. Let me have it. Um, but it adds, just, just keep going. <laughs> um, it adds a complication to that deck because with certain effects like the Encore, yeah, those tokens would say I sacrifice at the beginning of the next end step. And so you can do a lot of the same Obeka stuff and end the turn in response to those end step triggers. But with Myriad, it is a very different creature because Myriad says that you would exile those tokens at the end of combat. And so you'd be forced to end the turn at a different time if you are using those and that to me is what feels like the biggest difference in the way that this strategy would play out not necessarily with what you're doing what you're doing is getting a bunch of creatures into play and keeping them around by evading negative triggers but when you're doing it is the thing that will change and that's a really important strategical difference for a player to keep in mind depending on which version of Obeka they're most interested in trying out yeah being more mindful in when you're playing a certain way 
is definitely something you need to keep in mind. But mm. Joey, I have a question for you. So we've been talking about commanders that we see on EDH Rec, but we haven't talked about any of our own commanders, anything that we've seen for our own deck building processes. What is something that you have noticed that maybe the the budget has kind of shifted the way that you tried to build the deck from what you would have done otherwise? Yeah, yeah, this is a very interesting question. I think the um the thing that comes most immediately to mind for me was actually an experience I had on uh when I was building I was budgetizing my Baba La Saga deck for an episode of Shuffle Up and Play, where I was on with Tomer from MTG Goldfish and Alec from the Fairy Conclave podcast, and of course it's Prof Show, and it was a really fun time. And we played decks that were like less than $50. And my original version of Baba La Saga was not a $50 deck, but I wanted to play that deck, and so I made a budget version of it. And that did change the way that I valued certain cards in that deck, to be honest. Because I no longer had access to my Ashayas or my biotransferences, turning different types into other things. And so instead, that actually led me towards a very interesting experience of playing more cards like Minion's Return or Necrogen Communion or Kaya's Ghost Form, which I could put onto Baba La Saga herself. So instead of changing types like I was used to doing, I was instead putting these enchantments onto Baba La Saga and kind of doing that Fool's Demise thing, where I could sacrifice Baba and the enchantment and something else and get Baba right back and that opened up a whole new thing i was like wait this is amazing why haven't i been doing this the whole time and so i think in that way playing with the big splashy cards actually kind of distracted me from another thing that i really should have been doing with that deck the entire time yeah i mean that's that's totally fair there i i for i guess for an example for myself if i get to answer my own question uh, please do yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it it so i used to have and Alicia who smiles at death deck. And, and that, again, kind of like Obeka, you're kind of shoehorned into a specific strategy when you play certain commanders. And Alicia was no different. There was a lot about reanimation. But I kind of set out my goal. of I wanted to be, this was my bulk foil deck. So every card had to be foil. It had to be less than a dollar. Mm. So that got very, very specific of what I was trying to do. And so I couldn't just... I mean, Karmic Guide today is a very cheap card, but back when I had that deck back in 2015, Karmic Guide and, and, and Revelark, those were not, they were not cheap cards by any means. And so yeah. I had to get very, very creative with what I was trying to do. And, and somehow like, Ponyback Brigade happened to be the best card in the deck. And <laughs> there's never a good situation. If that's your best card, you're not doing very well. But back then, when we, we you could pull it off. So it was it was fun to see how specific and just you really have to do your homework. And it, so I'm surprised actually that Dana hasn't done more hyper budget type of builds because that seems to be right up his alley. You can still find powerful things to be doing if you're just willing to do a little bit of homework and find, okay, well, I don't have access to Cyclonic Rift like we talked about earlier. So instead I have to go to Engulf the Shore and I have to go to maybe Whelming Wave. Or River's Rebuke, or, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I went to those in my AC Tyrant of Gyre Straits deck. I didn't, and plus I, I switched over, so I have Karuga now as the companion, so I couldn't even play Cyclonic Rift if I wanted to. But because of budget, before I even made that transition, I was looking for ways to, I still want that effect, because it's a powerful effect, wiping away all of the, the creatures that your opponents have, with leaving something left over for myself. So finding creative ways to do it without spending $40 on a Cyclonic Rift was a challenge that I had to go do in a little bit more homework. But then I found a card that actually was better in a lot of situations because I could con either control how it swept everything. And so finding those balances and just, like I said, doing that Dana type research for the budget's sake 
it's oftentimes it's a fun example where you get to find some really powerful cards that you otherwise wouldn't have considered. Now, I mean, you mentioned Dana there, and I actually, without him being here, I want to rope in an example from him um, a, a little bit because he's got an equipment deck with Arden and Essior, and he has noted, I think just on our stream, twitch.tv slash EDHRECast. Um, there it is. How there, it is. Th there you go. Getting the plug in there. Um, that there are certain ways that his equipment deck has had those little ripple effects out there based on access to certain cards. And I think this is a really strong example to bring up in this episode are the sword of X and Y effects. Those amazing swords, fire and ice, feast and famine, all of those amazing cards that will give you great protection on the equipped creature and also have benefits when that creature actually strikes an opponent. But giving protection from certain colors that's like a bigger deal in an equipment deck nowadays than it used to be way in the past because there are a lot more colored equipment out there. There are more cards like, I don't know, Ember Cleave, for instance, or Lion Slash can reconfigure itself into an equipment. And that is totally a non-bow in your deck if you are trying to play a thing that gives your, your equipped creature protection from red and from white. So if you are playing a card like a Sword of War and Peace in your equipment deck, that's an expensive card that might actually have those domino effects out into the rest of your deck because suddenly it shuts off other equipment that you wanted to use. Or if you really want to use the Lion Sash, maybe you don't go out for the more expensive equipment. And, and that actually feels really good to me. It feels nice to have an incentive to not just play the big classic staple type cards. Yeah, it just opens up doors when you realize, oh, like the, the expensive version of what I was trying to do came with some restrictions built in. Mm. I don't have that anymore. So you're able to be a little more loose with what you're doing, too. So we sometimes give yourself a restriction, but sometimes you take them away too. And that's something that you want to make sure that you're considering yeah. whenever you're going through and in kind of workshopping and brewing your deck is seeing, okay, if I take this out, what does it open up? What am I able to do that I wouldn't have otherwise with that card slot? And sometimes it's not just that one. It's, it's, there's three or four card slots that open up from that. And that's something that a lot of decks happen to be looking at and, and be messing with, but people don't really look for it. And, and sometimes it's just a missed opportunity. I think that's a really beautiful lesson for us to take away here, Matt, because I mean, you know, we, we started this of like, you know, does budget sometimes change what the strategy of a deck can do? And we listed a, plenty of examples just here about like, oh, you know, here are some times where there are certain signpost cards that are expensive that might, you know, have ripple effects on the deck data. And it was really interesting to go into those. But I love the way that you said that like playing those or not playing those sometimes opens your world to other cooler stuff to do. That was literally the case with my Babala Saga example. Not having access to the big expensive stuff made me find other stuff that I wish I'd been playing the entire time because of how cool it was. And here's, I guess, the other thing to, you know, get it back around to answering that question is that finding examples for the show was actually like kind of dang hard. <laughs> like there it weren't was. a ton of huge changes in the data. These were some examples that we saw that were like pretty noteworthy and we could see some big stuff, but like most of the shifts that you see in the data are not actually all that big because as you said before, you can play any strategy any type of way. There's a lot of redundancy for those types of things. So if you want to play combo or aristocrats or tokens or time stopping or whatever on a budget, do it. And if you want to play at high budget, you can totally do it. There are small things to be aware of, but they're not at all prescriptive or restrictive. Yeah, there's no reason that you can't build really any strategy on a budget anymore, whether it's because of reprints, whether it's because we've gotten multiple cards doing similar effects, stuff like that. There's a lot of opportunity for you to really build whatever strategy you want. And 
whatever budget restriction you want to put on yourself in that process. It used to be, oh, you can't play elves because you need X, Y, Z cards and and that's how it's (laughs) going to get powerful. But even then between reprints, so you have, you know, Priest of Titania isn't a $20 card anymore. I remember when that was (laughs) like restrictively expensive. It's not the case anymore. And even then you have so many other copies of cards that are going to be able to make a ton of mana so that you don't, you're not relying on a specific three cards anymore, plus a worldly tutor to find it. <laughs> there's, there's so many more, just the density that you don't even need tutors for a lot of those decks anymore, even. Yeah, yeah. Also, great examples. Like a lot of the best landfall cards tend to be really expensive, or Planeswalker, Super Friend strategies are also, I mean, a lot of those cards also get pretty expensive too. But that doesn't mean they're impossible. That in no way means that they're impossible. And those strategies are powerful enough that you can still do really cool things no matter what way you're playing them. So, uh, Matt, to, I guess, finally get around to us trying to answer this question, do you think that budget substantially changes your strategies? Absolutely not. There you go. Yeah. hundred percent. We'll just, yeah, we'll get definitive here. It does not. <laughs> yeah. Having duels in your deck does not do a whole lot. But even with some of these, like what we noticed were trends in the data. But again, EDHREC has never been anything prescriptive. So these are interesting things to keep in mind. And we hope that that makes it easier to make wiser choices about your decks. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, let let your heart be free. Do whatever it is that you are interested in doing because... As Matt pointed out, there's a lot of redundancy to make a lot of this pretty darn uh, cool and fun to to do. And those restrictions, as you said, can open up some options that you didn't even realize would be really, really cool for you. And Matt, I'm excited to see whatever you do with your future brews whenever those restrictions open up other doors for you as well. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how my Raga Draga deck even came to be because nobody wants eyeless watchers, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's another great example. See, like, yeah, it's... (laughs) I think the end of the day, in all of these situations, we're having a dang good time playing this dang game, aren't we? So Yeah, yeah. definitely. Sweet deal. All right. Well, with that, I guess we're going to call this episode to a close. Listeners, we would love to hear from you about your thoughts of how these different small changes can have ripple effects throughout an entire deck. And Matt, if our listeners want to get in touch with us to tell us all about it, where can they find you? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRETCAST. We have guests on every single week, and it's always a super fun time, so make sure you tune in for that as well. And Dana can be found on Twitter at Dana Roach. Yeah, for sure. Go check him out as well. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me at Joseph M. Schultz, and you can find the cast at EDHRETCAST on Facebook and the Twitters and all those social media coordinate places. If you've got a question for us, you can also contact us at EDHRETCAST at gmail.com. One more time, we want to give a thank you to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you you wreck your deck.